The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories, and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org slash radioactive. Hey there, Suzanne here. So I'm sitting in my home recording booth, which is... More like a fort that I made out of old quilts in a closet. (laughs) But like everybody else, my world has been turned upside down by the current global COVID-19 crisis. It's weird to know that you're living through one of those major moments of history. And since this is a history podcast, we thought we'd take a look back at a time that now seems eerily familiar. The flu pandemic of 1918. We're going to start it all off with a coincidence. I'm a pretty hard-bitten cynic, you know, but, but that really got my attention. <laughs> it was the 1990s. Kathleen Wood was on a red-eye flight from L.A. to New York. Everyone else on the plane was asleep, but the guy next to me was reading. And at some point, he says to me, are you an attorney? And I said, yes. And he said, what are you working on? And I said, uh, dispute over film rights. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm a, I work in that business. This was the beginning. Coincidence number one. I had the contracts in front of me and he, and he grabbed one of them and he, he rifles through it and he turns to the signature page and he says, that's me. And I looked down and it was Barb Potter. And I said, well, that, that's strange. So Barb Potter, the guy who randomly was sitting next to Kathleen on the plane, happened to be involved with the case that she was working on weird. But like I said, just the beginning. He asked me where I went to law school. He said he went to the same law school. They both lived in Hollywood Hills. And, you know, we were just sort of chit-chatting. And at some point he wanted to know where I was from originally. Kathleen grew up in Leewood, but back in the day, her family had lived on farms around St. Joseph, Missouri. And he said, oh, his family was from St. Joseph, Missouri. You know, at some point, we stopped talking, and he gave me his number. So when Kathleen gets back home, she gives her aunt a call. And my great-grandmother, who, you know, was from St. Joe, uh, was there. And I said, put her on the phone. And I asked her if she knew this family. Kathleen's great-grandmother was the type of woman who lived for the present. She didn't like to talk about the First or Second World Wars or the Spanish flu. But this phone conversation got her to really open up about that time, especially the name Potter. She said, Carol Potter was the doctor who saved my life during the flu pandemic. Carol Potter, turns out, was Bar Potter, the guy on the plane's grandfather. And I said, what? (laughs) And she said, yeah, Doc Potter came out to the farm because we'd all been really sick And my sister Grace and her baby had just died and she couldn't breathe because her lungs were filled with fluid. And he decided to 
cut, I guess with a scalpel, cut a hole in her flank and stick a tube in and he drained the fluid from her lungs. And she said, that's why I lived. Kathleen says to this day, this is one of those coincidences that always gets a lot of attention and is fun to tell at cocktail parties. The fact that she came across all of this just because of a random conversation on a plane. That the heroic act of a doctor, Carol Potter, is the reason her great-grandmother survived back then. It's why Kathleen is alive today. You just realize that every little action that we take now is going to influence generations to come. And we'll never know how, you know. But it just shows that every little thing you do can affect somebody's life in some way and the lives of other people that aren't even born yet. This is a People's History of Kansas City, a podcast from KCUR 89.3. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Life is precious. If we don't tell the stories, who is? And if they're lost in history, they're lost. You know, you're like, man, why didn't I know that before? This is my history. Like Kathleen Wood, so many families were forever changed. Lives were cut short or extended because of the events that unfolded during the global pandemic of 1918. On this episode, it's all about the history of what's known as the Spanish flu of 1918 and how it affected Kansas City. The Spanish flu infected 500 million people across the globe, nearly a third of the entire world's population. It killed 50 million people worldwide. And Kansas City was one of the hardest hit places in the nation. But why? Kansas City just really blew it. Kansas City's troubled battle against the Spanish flu in 1918. Get ready for tales of corruption, bravery, innovations, mistakes, power, grief, and an overwhelming loss of human life. If there's one spoiler I can give you ahead of it all, it's that politics matter. Okay, so like I said, what you're about to hear might at times sound eerily familiar. History stories can be weird like that. So let's travel back in time here and paint a picture of what Kansas City was like before all of this went down to the beginning of the 20th century over 100 years ago. Before World War I in the early 1900s, Kansas City was booming economically and in terms of population. And the City Beautiful movement was transforming this once muddy, hard-to-navigate bluff town into an attractive city with scenic boulevards. It was a place with a strong civic spirit. The slogan for the two decades I'm talking about, from 1900 to 19, or to the World War I, or the Great War as they knew it, was uh, make Kansas City a good place to live in, which we would think is, that's long and cumbersome, and it ends in a preposition. But <laughs> Bill Worley is a Kansas City historian. The point being that they really wanted to make this a good place to live. They were Kansas City's entrepreneurs of the day. A good place to live also meant a good place to make some money. Just look around today at some of the city's street signs and institutions to get an idea of some of the folks we're talking about here. J.C. Nichols. The real estate developer. The Armour family. And livestock and meatpacking. The Kemper family. The big-time bankers. William Volker. A craftsman in the hardware business. And R.A. Long. A regional lumber baron. Throw in the mix William Rockhill Nelson, the owner of the Kansas City Times paper, parks guru George Kessler, and politicians Tom Pendergast and Joe Shannon. 
These last two were the guys who were really pulling the strings, but we'll get more into that later. Regionally, it was a booming time for agriculture. There was a growing middle class. According to the 1910 census, 80% of Kansas Cityans were white. African Americans were segregated and made up about another 10%. During that time, they were establishing their own strong community institutions around health and education. They had their own churches, stores, and a thriving music scene. The other 10% were newer immigrants. Mexicans, Polish, Irish, Greek, German, Italian, Swedes, Russians, also all living mostly in their own segregated areas close to where the work was. Horses, electric streetcars, and early automobiles moved people all around the city. Steamboats were moving goods up and down the Missouri River. And of course, the railroad was expanding rapidly. In the summer of 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, and the rest of Europe broke out into war. At that time, Kansas City was gearing up to celebrate the opening of the newly built Union Station. World War I and the Spanish flu are deeply connected. Political leaders never want to admit that there's something going wrong when a war is happening. Susan Sykes-Berry is a nurse and historian who has thoroughly studied the pandemic of 1918. We'll be hearing a lot more from her in a minute. So Spain was a neutral country during the war. While other European countries were censoring their press, when influenza popped up in Spain, they reported on it. Even their king got sick. Later, when the flu became more widespread and deadlier, the reporting out of Spain made it seem like that's where it started. Hence the perhaps maybe unfair name of the Spanish flu. Ironically, especially for our Kansas friends, the Spanish flu is actually believed to have started in Kansas, in Haskell County of all places, near Camp Funston, which is now Fort Riley. In early 1918, there were reports from a small-town doctor about a horrible strain of influenza that was infecting and killing some of the strongest and healthiest members of the community. There are other theories out there that the flu started in other places. But because it's been so long, it's nearly impossible to know for sure where it actually started. But the Kansas account is maybe the most popular theory. What we do know is that during the first wave in the spring of 1918, the virus spread internationally. It was very deadly and largely unreported. But the second wave that would begin in mid-September would prove to be far too dangerous to ignore. So like I said, Susan Sykes-Berry is a nurse and historian. She wrote her thesis specifically about Kansas City during the 1918 pandemic. Kansas City just really blew it. (laughs) And this is why she says Kansas City blew it. One, public institutions like the Board of Health and Welfare Board were very new. And these institutions were completely swayed by boss politics, more specifically a battle for power between two men. If you needed help, you went to Tom Pendergast or Joe Shaman, and they got you a job and they took care of you in exchange for your vote. Tom Pendergast's family had been involved with saloons and gambling. He had a short stint on the city council, and then he'd later go into the concrete business. Joe Shannon was the son of Irish immigrants in St. Louis, from a family that was heavily involved in politics. He later moved to Kansas City and was a central figure in the Democratic Party locally and nationally. Both Pendergast and Shannon were Democrats, with lots of power around here. 
but they had different interests and stakes throughout the city. I'll just let Sue explain it. I guess the easiest way to explain it is that the mayor at this time is is Mayor Cowgill. And he was a compromise choice between Pendergast and Shannon. The, the mayor prior to him, he was actually a Republican because Shannon and Pendergast couldn't agree on a candidate. And so they both told their voters to just stay home from the election. So the Republican candidate won because none of the Democrats came out. So once that happened, Pendergast and Shannon decided, okay, well, we need to get the mayor mayor back. And so we'll agree on this candidate. And even though I won't have full control of the city, I'll take 50% and you take 50%. And at least it's all in our control. So Mayor James Cowgill was a compromise, a guy who could be both of their guys. And it's important to consider that all the city departments, the police, the fire department, city council, and every office of city government was controlled by these two bosses, 50-50, Pendergast and Shannon. Pendergast and his supporters were known as goats, and Shannon and his supporters were called rabbits. Sue says another important thing to know about medicine at this time is that there were lots of different theories about what caused illnesses. There was maybe the oldest theory, miasmus, which was the idea that disease was caused by bad air, fumes, or the climate. You know, it, it's just in the air. There's, you need to stay clean and stay out of bad air and you'll be fine. There was the filth theory, which attributed disease to dirty living conditions. And then there was the newest idea, germ theory, which is that disease is caused by small living organisms. You know, there were invisible microbes that caught, that spread disease. And germ theory was also in competition with the new chemical theory, an idea that zymes could create a reaction in the body that would make people sick. I mean, it's different today. We're, we're all 100% behind the germ theory. And so there's not as much excuse for stupidity as there was back then. So it's mid-September 1918, the very beginning of the second wave of influenza, what would be the most deadly wave to hit major cities across the nation. Kansas City's Mayor Cowgill is fresh into his role as the mayor when the first cases are reported here on September 27th. Some of these early cases were workers in hotels and at Fred Harvey's restaurant in Union Station. These first cases were among hospitality workers, people whose jobs exposed them to lots of other people moving in and out and around the city. And Sue says that this fact was a sign that things were about to get really bad in Kansas City. And the symptoms of the Spanish flu were terrifying. It would hit young people, people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who were in the best of health. And they would get sick in the morning and be dead by the evening. It was, it was just horrendously frightful. It was a fast-moving respiratory attack accompanied by fever and chills. Your lungs would fill with fluid, and so you kind of drowned in your own fluid. It was a terrible death. They talked about doctors in the military camps said that because the soldiers were turning blue, which is we call cyanosis, Um, that you couldn't tell the black soldiers from the white soldiers. They were just blue, and you couldn't see anything else. And once that started, you you were going to die because we had nothing to treat it with. 
Later studies would show that good nursing care would better your chances of survival, and that strict quarantines, like what they were doing on some of the military bases, could contain the disease. But this was all information that was not widespread or fully understood at the time. There was no cure, no vaccine, and people didn't know how it spread. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. Sue says people were trying to promote a lot of different kinds of treatments and remedies. The favorite one of mine is laxatives. Everybody everybody said, go home and give yourself a laxative. (laughs) But there was, you know, the usual onions and garlic, and some people took up smoking because they thought smoke kept it away. My favorite tip comes from Kansas City's Dr. Gannon, in charge of infectious diseases at the health department. His tip? Avoid kissing. Quote, there's a great deal of kissing going on in this city every 24 hours. And if a ban should be placed on it, there would be considerable less influenza in a few days. Other common tips were to avoid dust, crowds, sick people, dress sensibly to the weather, or sleep on a porch if possible, or a well-ventilated area. Wash your throat regularly with salt solution. As this terrible sickness was hitting Kansas City, even doctors at the health department were in conflict about what to do. Particularly Dr. Gannon, our anti-kissing infectious disease doctor, and Dr. Bullock, who was the health director and superintendent of the general hospital. Gannon and Bullock were most likely backed behind different political bosses and had different theories on how disease spread. And they had really different ideas on how city government and the public should respond to all of this. I could never find out which side they were on, the Pendergast side or the, I mean, that's just lost to history. But um, it did seem like from the interactions we saw that they were not working well together. On October 6th, in a Kansas City Times article, the reporter notes that 24 people have died and there are 56 new cases. Yet Dr. Bullock insists that the situation is not dangerous yet. Dr. Gannon, on the other hand, is already suggesting they order the streetcars to close. He urges the mayor to declare a state of emergency. But the request gets denied, and the order to close the streetcars turns into a request to clean them. It's a request that never got fulfilled. It eventually takes the intervention from the Chamber of Commerce to urge the mayor and public officials to take action. On October 7th, a little over a week after the first cases are reported, the city does place a ban on public gatherings of more than 20 people. The next day, schools are ordered to close. Kansas City, Kansas closed schools and ordered a ban two days later. On the Kansas side, public officials cooperated and complied with the order. But on the Missouri side, that was not the case. It was a ban, but it was a ban with big, wide holes in it. Sue says the ban in Kansas City, Missouri had tons of exemptions. They exempted any war effort, so regular Liberty Loan lunches continued. This also meant military parades were exempt. And beyond the long list of exemptions, the ban just also wasn't really being enforced. 
the police were under the control of the of Pendergast and, and uh, Shannon. So you know, Tom Pendergast owned a bar. Well, you're not going to close your boss's place of establishment, and if you don't close his, why close anybody else's? Bars and saloons stayed open and were very crowded. The other problem, of course, is the state line. So if someone in Kansas wants to get a beer and all the bars in in Kansas are closed, they just walk across the state line to Missouri and all the bars are open because that's how it was. (laughs) This, of course, meant the disease just continued to spread rampantly across the state line, infecting people in both cities. And the streetcars were still a problem. Dr. Gannon wanted that strictly regulated to no more than 20 people per car. And, And first the Metropolitan Railway owner, um, he said, yeah, we'll cooperate. And then um, it turned out he wasn't doing a thing. So the streetcars remained crowded and dirty. As early as October 11th, only four days into this pretty weak ban, city officials are already starting to pressure the mayor to lift it because it was hurting the economy. So then after a week, the already kind of half-assed ban was lifted. Meanwhile, healthcare workers were in high demand as cases grew. Hospitals added beds. New nurses were recruited as many were already serving overseas. Morgues couldn't keep up with the dead. Mrs. Harry Mather, head of the Red Cross, was quoted in the Kansas City Times about her growing frustrations. You men consider how you can protect your business, while the lot of caring for the sick falls to us. Women are dying while they care for the sick in this epidemic, and you sit and decide how many people you will let die. After a spike in cases of the Spanish flu and pneumonia and a growing number of deaths, a big meeting is held with the health board and the mayor. The result, on October 17th, a supposedly stricter ban was put in place. But even so, later that same day, the mayor attended a big agriculture expo at the convention hall. They never could get uh, a good ban going. And they finally did decide to be strict about it. They kind of waited too long. It was never effective in Kansas City. It went on like this. Dr. Bullock continued to push for lifts of the ban. Things would be exempt. Dr. Gannon and other healthcare workers would make recommendations. They'd get ignored. All the while, the deadly flu continued to spread. It was a hard time for everybody. But poor families living in the slums and tenements had it really hard. Susan Sykes-Berry says there were many tragic accounts of young children becoming orphans and homeless after losing both parents to the disease. They'd be left in these poor living conditions just to fend for themselves. Yet stories of kindness do shine through. Sue says it was a very cold October, and... There were cases where there was no heat in the building. And, you know, neighbors would heat bricks and take them up to the sick person and hope that that would get them through the night. And um, in some cases it worked, but in other cases it was just too little too late. By the end of October, both Dr. Gannon and Dr. Bullock were optimistic that the cold weather and freeze would clear the air and help eliminate the disease. By this point, over a thousand people had died in Kansas City. October was the most deadly month here. But folks who know their World War I history know what's about to happen next. On November 11, 1918, 
Germany formally surrendered, and all nations agreed to stop fighting, ending the global conflict then known as the Great War, a war meant to end all wars. This was a great victory and exciting news, but what followed only continued the spread of infection throughout the city. You just want to go back and yell at them, please don't do this. Philadelphia is famously known for throwing a giant parade that further ignited the already rampant spread of Spanish flu in their city. They were also nationally one of the hardest hit cities in the country. Kansas City was a similar scene. Nearly 100,000 people filled the streets of downtown to celebrate. It was packed, curb to curb crowds, the paper said. Through November and December, the disease continued to spread and kill. But by the end of December, before Christmas, both bans had been lifted in Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas, and the disease had mostly petered out. The big news in Kansas City at the end of 1918 was that despite a streetcar strike, major snowstorm, and influenza, shoppers had spent lavishly during the Christmas season. Like I said, the loss of human life was huge. By the end of it all, in Kansas City, 11,000 people got sick, and nearly 2,000 people died. Though it's important to note that getting an accurate number of deaths and cases was a huge problem at the time. Lots of deaths and cases were either just not reported or miscategorized as pneumonia. I recently posted in the Kansas City History Buffs Facebook page, asking people to share stories about any of their local ancestors who died during the pandemic. And tons of people responded, sharing stories of survival, hardship, and tragedy. Christy Robinson's great-grandfather ran a funeral home. They ran out of caskets and had to wrap bodies in sheets that people would donate. Paula Oakman's great-aunt lost all three of her daughters. David Silver's Aunt Beatrice lost her husband and then three of her five children, all within a few days. A third wave hit in 1919, but it was not as deadly as the second. And then by 1920, it had mostly run its course. When it was all said and done, Kansas City's mortality rate was 719 per 100,000. In St. Louis, a city with a stricter quarantine, also hit hard by the flu, the mortality rate was nearly half of that. Naturally, when a tragedy happens, people want to place blame. And Sue says, again, it all went back to those boss politics. You know, the mayor, he doesn't want to take any blame for what's going on. And, you know, he tries to turn it over to the medical professionals. Well, then the medical professionals make a recommendation to shut everything down and the mayor doesn't want to do it. So then they all get mad and quit. And so it it's just, it's like when you look at a situation and you go, what else could go wrong? It did in Kansas City. Eventually, Dr. Gannon was fired. Dr. Bullock got infected and survived. Then a doctor from the federal government was brought in to oversee what was going on here, as lots of doctors at the general hospital were threatening to quit because they didn't have enough supplies and were being blamed for why the death rate was so high. It was all just kind of a mess. Here's Dr. Parker's assessment of the whole thing. He worked at Kansas City's general hospital. Quote, we have the ordinances, but they're rarely enforced. Human life is the cheapest commodity in Kansas City. But really, the stories behind the horror and blame of how this global pandemic went down after it all ended were still largely underreported and kind of blotted out of history. 
Many say that the end of World War I, the Great Depression, and then the Second World War just kind of overshadowed it. Hey, can you hear me? I do hear you. Do you hear me? So if it wasn't already obvious, I recorded my interview with historian Susan Sykesberry via Zoom. Each of us at our own homes, even though we live only a short walk away from one another. It's springtime 2020, and we're in the middle of a stay-at-home ordinance, about 100 years after the Spanish flu pandemic. Susan points out that back then, it was hard to place blame on leaders and doctors because people didn't know what caused the spread of disease. But even so, greed and special interests, politics, were definitely at play and behind some of the decisions that were being made in 1918. Decisions that had a human cost. Are there lessons you think we can learn or we have learned from from that time? I think there's a lot of lessons we could learn. I don't know that we have learned. It's important to think of other people. It's important when you're told to stay home, to stay home as much as you can. I'd like to think, or I guess hope, that a lot of lessons have been learned. That people are thinking about other people. I can't help but think about how that was so profoundly true in the story we started this episode with the heroic act of Doc Potter, and how it saved Kathleen Wood's great-grandmother's life. How will the things we do now affect somebody's life in the future? The lives of the next generation, and people who aren't even born yet. It's weird to think about the future, how this will all play out, how people might tell the story of this historic moment 100 years from now, the year 2120. I tried to capture a sonic postcard of this time, the sound of social distancing in 2020, the not-so-busy streets, the city stillness. Maybe it's just because it's spring and I'm home more now, but did the birds seem louder recently? A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR 89.3, made possible with the support of the Midwest Genealogy Center, which can help you learn more about the history of Kansas City through a searchable version of the Kansas City Star dating back to 1880. Learn more at mymcpl.org genealogy. If you have some ideas for a topic or a person that you think we should do an episode on, send it my way. You can just email me directly, Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, at kcur.org. If you missed our last episode about Missouri's incredible official state wonder dog, Jim, give it a listen now. I guarantee it will brighten your day. And after that, go ahead and check out the rest of our episodes. We'll have more KC History content coming your way soon, so stay tuned to the feed. And if you're a fan of the podcast, go ahead and tell your friends about it and leave us a review. Our team is Sylvia Maria Gross and Mike Russo, and we had help from Melody Rowell, Sean Hansen, Danny Fisher, CJ Janovey, Cody Newell, Krista Henthorne, Lynn Horsley, and Tracy Bauer. Our theme music is by Primary Color, and we also had tracks this episode from Chad Crouch, Zylo Zico, and Tapes and Tubes. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care, and thanks for listening. Hollywood writers are obsessed with the concept of an asteroid heading towards Earth and destroying civilization. But is this something we really should be worried about? I'm Kate the Chemist, and on my podcast, Seeking a Scientist, we meet the mastermind behind a real-life mission to divert the path of an asteroid. Subscribe to Seeking a Scientist, made possible by the Starris Institute.